the majority of our life, if you make a timeline from one to say 80, um, the average lifespan uh, for a woman is 76 and for a man is 74. So let's say 80. Um, so you have, you, you can see that the most of our life is, is uh, we're engaged in some form of work from, from the age of 20, right, to uh, the age of maybe 65. And most people hate their work. Worst day of the week is Monday, Monday morning. And their favorite day is Friday. So if we're not able to find fulfillment in what we do, we're actually setting ourselves up to be unhappy for the majority of our life. friends we are back we made it to another episode you're listening to be on air and i'm your host kaylee marks and boy do i have a profound episode for you today i'm really truly excited that i get to bring this conversation to you tune in to the whole thing there's a lot of wonderful topics that we get into today's guest is simon haas he is an internationally renowned teacher of yoga philosophy. And what makes him really unique is he specializes in applying this ancient wisdom to everyday life. And he just has a way with words and a way with how he simplifies things. Simon graduated from the University of Cambridge and he holds a master's in comparative religion from the University of Oxford. This gentleman is a scholar and he has a heart of gold and he is going to be sharing with you today from his book, Yoga and the Dark Night of the Soul, The Soul's Journey to Sacred Love. And we'll be exploring how crisis and difficulty can form part of our life path and how we can write our life story with love and compassion. And some of the amazing things that you'll take away from this episode today, you'll learn what people on their deathbed report regretting the most in their life. You'll learn different ways for coping and getting through the most challenging times of our life. You'll learn some ancient wisdom from one of the most revered spiritual texts on earth, the Bhagavad Gita, and you know, overcoming fear, overcoming our ego, overcoming attachment, how we can get out of our own way so that we can fully show up in this life. So, Please enjoy this episode. It is brought to you with a lot of love. Here we go. Simon, welcome so much to the show. Thank you for making time. I'm really excited to get to talk to you. And uh, how are you doing today? Thank you, Kaylee. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, things are very well. It's an honor to be on your show. Where in the world are you right now? I'm actually in Costa Rica, believe it or not. Uh, I'm wearing a sweater. It's a little bit ch- it's a little bit cold at the moment. I'm not sure why. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, yeah. You get the impression that Costa Rica is like pure tropical uh, bliss weather all the time. Normally, it is. Uh, there's been climate change for sure, and and yes. the weather patterns have changed now. Yeah, we're starting to see that everywhere, right? And uh, you know, there, it's a it's a crazy time on the planet. Maybe everyone always thinks that about the planet, uh, but it certainly feels like the the volume is being turned up or the heat is being turned up. And I couldn't think of a better time to talk about 
Yoga and the Dark Knight of the Soul. And you're a wonderful author. You've written the book of Dharma, Yoga and the Dark Knight of the Soul. And I have been loving both of them, uh, especially Yoga and the Dark Knight of the Soul. Personally, you know, I have probably gone through several of those Dark Knights of the Souls, but in particular lately this year, uh, it has been one of the more challenging times of my life. And the words that the, the way that you are making the Bhagavad Gita accessible through your book is really astounding. And so I'm really excited to kind of open this up. But I wanted to start by asking you, how did you start writing? Like when when was the first time that you really connected with the art of writing? Oh, that's an interesting that's an interesting question. Uh, I've always loved writing very much, but I've mostly written for myself. And then um, as I began studying the, the texts of India, I found that there's like a cultural, there's something of a cultural barrier um, presenting that, presenting this incredible wisdom in the ancient texts of India to contemporary readers and audiences. So I, I began writing, when was this? Maybe 10 years ago now, um, when I started writing, no, yeah, perhaps 10 years ago, started writing um, the Book of Dharma. And the idea of that was to make those teachings from the sacred text of India really easy to understand and accessible to contemporary readers. When you were younger, I'm just curious, like, where, would you write? Was that something that you were attracted to even from a young age, or is that something that you came to later in life? I, I used to keep a, di- a personal diary for a while. I would write stories, especially short stories. Um, I never shared anything of what I what I wrote. Uh, I kept it quite quite personal, quite private. Um, it, as a teenager, I started writing poetry, and um, a lot of the poetry I wrote is quite existential. <laughs> And um, devotional poetry also from the bhakti tradition. Uh, I've always been, I've always loved writing, but actually more than writing, I've been involved in uh, in helping others through editing. Mm-hmm. So editing the, the the English translations of my of my uh, teachers. I, I, I've spent many years working on that. So. Although I've been very interested in writing, most of my energy has gone towards um, supporting pro- projects through editing. Yeah, and you know, it, in our we share a, a, tra- a spiritual tradition and path, and in our tradition, there's writer after writer after writer after writer after writer after writer. It's like it's the line of writers, and you know, one of the things that I feel like you've done amazingly with especially yoga and the dark night of the soul is really just made it so accessible and you you've brought it through a lens that i think anyone whether you consider yourself spiritual or not whether you consider yourself religious or not whether you're interested in the sacred texts of india or not you're going to get an enormous amount of benefit from this and you've really like opened it up and simplified you bring out four steps of what the Bhagavad Gita illuminates. And I was wondering if maybe you could briefly share what those four steps are. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, The first step is set out on the journey of the soul. And that's a particular, uh, uh, that's encapsulated by the very first chapter of the Gita. And um, the way that Arjuna, the warrior, so the Gita, for those who are new, perhaps new to the topic, it's a battlefield dialogue, and it's a classic on yoga. 
And what's incredible about the Gita uh, is the setting of it, because normally you would think that the Bhagavad Gita, you'd think that a, a, a text on wisdom would be shared in a forest setting, peaceful, you know, the, the bank of a river or a lake. But here you have yoga teachings that are shared in the middle of a battlefield at the onset of war. So the setting is really quite uh, peculiar, you might say. Um, it definitely stands out. And a lot of that is because of the, um, so the texts of India are uh, um, the commentators over a long period of time. They've, they've shown that these texts often have different levels of meaning. So different dimensions. So um, there's, there's the literal dimension. There's often an ethical dimension. There's also a, a symbolic dimension. So the symbolism of the Gita is really um, quite important. And um, the, the, the battlefield is known as Kurukshetra. Kshetra means field. And Kuru comes from Kri, which means to do. So it's the field of action. So we're all on the field of action. And action is something we can't escape. Even when we decide not to do something, that's an action. <laughs> it can have huge impacts for, for better or for worse. Um, so the field of action can be very much like a battlefield. Unexpected changes in fortunes, uh, frenetic, chaotic. And how to act, how to make the, the chaotic field of life a sacred place to act. So that's Arjuna's starting point. And he actually begins his, his journey from a place of crisis. So that's, that's one step, um, one, one, one uh, uh, teaching in the Gita. And then you have a, a second teaching, which is, and these are like broad principles that you find in the Gita. So I'm going to refer to Yoga and the Dark Night of the Soul. Let every step be its own reward. And those are the teachings of karma yoga um, in the Gita. The first, you could say the first six chapters cover that. And now how to put this in a way that is, uh, that, that, that really um, connects with people. Um, so much, so often in, in our life, the actions that we do, they're, they're very much results-based. So we're looking into the future. And the action itself, we don't take, we may not find happiness or fulfillment in what, what it is we're actually doing. So I think, you know, um, I don't know what the, what's the age of retirement in the U.S.? Well, I guess it changes now. You know, everyone's <laughs> like, you get these young retirees, but it seems like it's around 60 something, right? 60, right. I'm not, I don't know the exact age, but some somewhere around there. And people often begin work in their early 20s. So the, the majority of our life, if you make a timeline from one to, say, 80, um, the average lifespan uh, for a woman is 76 and for a man is 74. So let's say 80. Um, so you have, you, you can see that the most of our life is, is uh, we're engaged in some form of work from, from the age of 20 right to uh, the age of maybe 65. And so I don't know what it's like in the U.S. In the U.K., most people hate their work. <laughs> <laughs> their worst day here. <laughs> worst day of the week 
is Monday, Monday morning and their favorite day is Friday. So if we're not able to find fulfillment in what we do, we're actually setting ourselves up to be unhappy for the majority of our life. So what Krishna, the, the speaker of the Bhagavad Gita, teaches to Arjuna, the warrior, is how to find deep fulfillment in what we do, how to make what we do a yoga practice. So that yoga is not something that's restricted to the yoga studio or the yoga mat, but it's continuous practice that uh, our yoga mat is the field of action, <laughs> the field of life. So that's the second uh, teaching. Can we can we dive into there a little bit? Because these yeah, yeah. each of these, uh, this is a huge book and each of these are infinite realms of exploration. But in there, I think it's so important because as creators as authors as speakers as anyone who is trying to bring forward their mission and vision it's so easy to get locked in this results oriented right. you know i need to earn this i need to make this amount happen i need to grow my audience by this amount and only then will i be happy satisfied fulfilled and it's this constant yearning and striving and then we never arrive and so what i'm really getting from the second point is like arrive in every moment of the journey in in union with with the supreme goal and and it i'm i'm curious like as you are out there and you know sharing your work and stuff how do you keep that in front of your mind because it's hard for me i'll totally get distracted and just start looking at the goal and kind of lose track and i won't let each step be the reward and i'm wondering how do you personally kind of manage that i try to follow three steps and I don't always succeed, admittedly. <laughs> it's a continuous, uh, a continuous endeavor. So the first step is, I, is, is to be true to who we are, to be true to our nature. Um, we each have, we're not all built the same way. And maybe that's one big failing of our educational system, that it uh, assumes that everyone's the same, you know, like a co cookie-cutter approach. But we have a unique set of... Um, we have a unique personality, a unique set of uh, innate skills. Some of those we can we can develop over time, but there is so much to us that is uh, unique. And so the first step that that uh, the first part of karma yoga is to to be true to who we are. Um, I don't know if you've heard of a of a nurse named Bronnie Ware. She's quite recently published a, a book on on um, patients that she was speaking to. So she's a palliative nurse, and she that means she was caring for patients who were in their final days. I'm not sure if she's still doing that now. So she thought to herself, I'm not simply going to ask, I'm not simply going to care for these patients as best as I can. Maybe I can also learn from them. So she began asking them questions. Um, what in your life has gone well? Uh, what would you do differently if you could start over? And what's your number one regret? And there was one regret that kept coming up again and again and again. The number one regret of dying patience. I wish I'd had the courage to be true to myself rather than try and live up to the expectations of everyone else it was the number one regret. <laughs> wow. Wow. And that's what Arjuna Krishna tells Arjuna in the Gita. Uh, he says, you know, thousands of years earlier, he says, it's better 
to follow your path, even if you make mistakes, than to follow the, someone else's path and execute that perfectly. So we can have all the trappings of success. You know, we can have the status symbols, the bank account, the large house, whatever it is, however, uh, you know, we think it needs to be measured. But if we're not doing what we're supposed to do, if we're not acting in a way that's aligned with who we are, we'll never feel, there will always be a sense of uh, a lack of fulfillment. So that's definitely um, uh, something that I I, I try to do. Now, it's not always easy because we have, um, we often have to do things that maybe don't align with who we are. But I found in my life, at least, that if we make a space, even if it's a small space, for what is true to who we are, um, that is is deeply enriching, and that space begins to grow. <laughs> it, it's it's quite extraordinary. It just begins to grow. We may soon find ourselves uh, just doing that. Mm, that is so powerful, and it it seems like that exploration of being true to ourselves requires a lot of discernment, which would probably lead us to the third subject of of the book or of the Gita, right? Which is let discernment be the warrior's sword maybe you could speak a little bit about that those are the the three um those are the final six chapters of of the gita and they are uh a collection of teachings from the sankhya tradition the 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 ancient sankhya tradition of india and then and, the, just for the listeners, so Sankhya, it would would that be considered sort of like logic and philosophy and kind of like how to how to tell what is what in in reality? Is, how, I'm not sure how you would describe yes, it. Yes, it, it's 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 quite it's quite close to that. Um, it's um, sometimes Sankhya is is translated as enumeration, but it has much. It's much more than that uh, because it's it's actually something that is meant to be lived. And so the teachings of the Gita and of the, in India in general are not meant to deliver information. They're designed to transmit or deliver transformation. And, and so the, the Sankhya teachings are, are not meant to be simply kind of contemplated, but actually lived in our life. So probably uh, a better translation in a way is to use is the word discernment. So Sankhya allows us to be very discerning in the way we 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 live our life now um the the yoga teachings of patanjali which um viewers will many viewers will be familiar with the basis of that or the foundation of of that is in in terms of yoga philosophy is sankhya so sankhya is the basis of most of the yoga that that we practice and know about at least in 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 the contemporary Western world. So an example of Sankhya um, is the the three gunas. There are three um, qualities that color our perception and make up the world. Sattva, Rajas, and Tamas. And... um, being able to discern the, the various qualities, these three qualities and how they interact with each other is a form of yoga. So this is what's really fascinating about the Gita is that there are 18 systems of yoga, 18 chapters, each one's a system of yoga. And they're very powerful systems. 
um, even you know focusing on a single one of them that you know there may be different systems will be will will attract or draw different people according to to to, to who they are and 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 their preferences so the the system of yoga that is the three gunas you can apply it in anything so i'll give you an example um in communication for example so communication that is destructive in its nature so um putting people down trying to uh dismantle what they're saying uh criticism self-criticism too mm-hmm. uh, uh, of a particular quality if it's the certain type of destructive uh self-talk yeah. that is also in tamas um tamas literally means darkness so that kind of communication is uh in tamas and it has particular results that come from that there's another type of communication and that's in rajas and rajas is the the energy that creates things so if we have a conversation and i'm trying to convince you of something or um i'm trying to show i'm trying to prove that i'm right <laughs> or i have some other agenda like that that is a conversation or communication in rajas mm-hmm. and then the highest form of communication is in sattva and it has a completely different quality it's when two people are able to suspend their agenda in that moment and they're truly present to the conversation and they're able to listen to each other and the result of that is remarkable and we've all had experience of these kinds of conversations there's um vitality and intimacy you develop intimacy with the other person you have this like sense that you've that that other person has really um has has looked into your world there's been like a connection soul to soul connection and and that's communication in in sattva so the sankhya teachings are all about different qualities and different um aspects of the world and how to differentiate between them and so this is the sort of discernment is is learning how to how to perceive that we are actually at all times being swayed by these different energies and uh w- with that knowledge it almost it, it gives us that it's like that awareness just like in 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 any sort of psychological system of the modern time right having awareness over something then gives us that freedom to start to create change in a little bit more space that's exactly right that's exactly right and the most important part of sankhya is understanding that we're not this physical body and we're not the story that we inhabit that so we all create this story that we take so seriously <laughs> mm-hmm. and we carry that story with us wherever we go we we think we're the central character in that story and to have a story is not a problem but when we forget it's just a story and we take it so seriously we're prepared to even lose friends over it then we that story binds us it entraps us and so maybe the most important teaching of sankhya is to understand those aspects of the world that we are not mm. um and uh so that wisdom is is compared to a sword because it severs our illusions and it's the illusions that we hold on to that cause suffering associated with time 
fear, lamentation, and confusion. Fear is suffering associated with the future, lamentation, suffering associated with the past, and confusion with the present. So interestingly, the Gita, for um, viewers who are have a particular interest in the Gita, the very first verse of the Gita uh, is about a, a blind emperor who is the root cause of this whole battle. That whole conflict is, is brought about because of his deep attachment to his own story. And in the opening verse, he's relating his own story, which is filled with fear, um, e ego, and attachment. Mm -hmm. And the Gita begins that way because that's the dominant way in general that we approach life. You mention in, in the book, too, sort of two sides of the dark night of the soul, sort of the conscious, I'm really struggling right now, I'm going through the dark night, and then Dhritarashtra, the, the blind king, right. he represents this sort of shadow dark night of the soul that we're not even aware of. And that, dis that, that distinction is very interesting, and this also ties into this idea of like, discernment and and cutting through ignorance because he he's so wrapped up in his story he's not even aware of sort of that his fate is sealed in a way right right yes um this is a a, a very deep teaching of from the sacred text of india that the various dark nights of the soul or existential crises that we'll experience they emerge from a deeper um, a deeper dark night that we might not even be aware that in general we're not we're not aware of and that's known as in, in Sanskrit as avidya and it's a, a lack of lack of knowledge but by knowledge it, it, it's not referring to intellectual understanding but, but awareness perception of, of who we are we're much greater than the small human story that we hold on to and try and live out. And in fact, that's what creates the, the, the existential crisis when circumstances in the world come about that rupture the fabric of our small human story that we're clinging to. And then suddenly we find ourselves adrift. We find ourselves uh, without purpose and meaning and, and um, and, and that, that's the, the underlying cause of the dark night of the soul that we might experience from, from time to time in our life. Yes, and, and this avidya or the, the, the ignorance, the, in, in the Gita, it is ex, it's subtly demonstrated how one rises out of that. And so before we get into the fourth teaching of the Gita, I was actually wondering if you could maybe talk about how it is that you found your spiritual teacher and how he wow. helped you um, learn all these amazing things and, and, and go through your own, your own process with this. And maybe you could, you know, you share the story in the book, but maybe you could share that with the listeners now, because it's really beautiful. Um, originally I was, uh, I was interested in archeology span and um, I began, um, I began studying archeology span and, I had heard about an, an archaeologist named Schliemann. And Schliemann, he, um, he went, to, uh, he went to, 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 to Greece and to uh, what today is Turkey. And he was looking for um, the city of Troy. At that time, 
the the classics, um, the ancient Greek classics were considered just to be stories with no um, no historical foundations or, or no historical uh, truth to them. So he thought there must, you know, he suspected that there was more to it than that. So he began uh, exploring and he dis- discovered the foundations of the city of Troy and, and so on. So from a young age, I was reading the Mahabharata, the Ramayana. And I also, I thought I would like to uh, go on an expedition in the future, <laughs> help uh, be part of a team and, um, you know, maybe uh, excavate the ancient um, city of Dwarka, the, the Krishna's island city. <laughs> and I began studying Sanskrit and, and the texts of India. And gradually my focus shifted because I became less interested in looking for physical artifacts because I began seeing that there's a huge treasure in these ancient texts. It's, it speaks about a wisdom to overcome uh, suffering associated with time. Imagine that. <laughs> and so much more. So then I, uh, in my study of the Bhagavad Gita and other texts, I reached a bit of a dead end because I wasn't able to enter into those teachings deeply. And the reason for that is that these are not self-help books. <laughs> so the genre of self-help didn't exist. <laughs> it's, it's our own uh, more recent kind of invention. So these texts are actually more designed more as teaching manuals. Everything is contained in something of a codified form. Well, they're in Sanskrit, but also the, uh, there's so much meaning packed into each Sanskrit verse, like a universe of meaning. And a teacher normally will spend a lot of time um, unpacking that. So I, I traveled to India as a teenager. <laughs> And I was very eager to meet to meet a teacher, and um, I, 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 in my heart, I prayed for for a teacher who, uh, in the Gita, describes someone who is tattva darshi, who is a truth seer. So not just someone who, uh, you know, has maybe memorized or learned a lot, has a certificate uh, right. <laughs> on their wall. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And. Um, the land of uh, there's one area of India known as Braja, Braj, which is um, Mathura, and um, it, it's 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 in Uttar Pradesh, and it's considered a, a very sacred, a magical land. So I traveled there, and and this is the birthplace of of Krishna, the speaker of the Bhagavad Gita. So I thought I should go there, <laughs> and. Um, and it was following um, a particular, uh, what's known as a, a parikrama, a, a certain type of pilgrimage, where, uh, but uh, on a particular day, uh, <laughs> it's known as Ikarashi. Ikarashi is the 11th day of the new moon and 11th day of following the full moon. And traditionally in India, and they've, this has been happening for hundreds, or hundreds or thousands of years, Pilgrims will come from different places and uh, make a circle, barefoot, walking barefoot all around the, the ancient town of, of, of Vrindavan where I was staying. And some people would also do that in a different way. They would, um, they would prostrate themselves on the ground 
and they would have like a stone. I don't know if I'll use this crystal. Actually, more like this one, actually. They would have like a, a stone that you'd find on, on, on the side of, of the path. And you extend and you place it in front of you. And that's known as a, a dandavat pranam. It's actually something that is a part of yoga that is a little bit lost in translation in, in, in the West. Not so many know about it. But it's a practice of prostration, which is designed to, um, it closes down the, the illusory ego and awakens a sense of, a prayerful sense of humility in the heart, where you're really letting go of the burdens, the burden that, that we carry in our life, this story that we carry of who we are and how we're important or going to become important or <laughs> all of these ideas that we have, which are so weighty and so noisy that we're not able to really hear anything beyond that. So this practice, we surrender that. We um, let that go. And so in this particular practice, you uh, do a prostration, place a stone in front of you, and then get up again and, and, and go right behind the stone that you've left and do that again. And, and, and you cover how many, mi- how many kilometers or miles is it? Um, I think it's like 12. It's, it's a lot walking with shoes. It's a lot walking without shoes. And then if you add in this amazing full, full body bow on the ground, one rock at a time, it's kind of it's mind blowing and hard to conceive of, you know, something I saw other people do. And I was like, yeah, I'll probably never do that. That looks really, really hard. So so you're moving, you're, you're taking a stone, you're doing a full bow, you're putting the stone in front of you. And then are you doing that with one stone? With one stone. Yeah. And some you just people, keep moving it. Some people, they do that with uh, a larger number. So I've seen some people do that with 108 stones. Um, I, many do it with one stone. And that's what I was doing. It took me three days to complete that. Wow. And, um, but it was just the most incredible experience. And in that, um, in that. Uh, Did you have an intention when you started out? I, I recall in the book, there was sort of a seed, right? My, my, my intention was, uh, was to, to, to pray for a teacher, to pray for um, a Tatva Darshi teacher who could guide me in on my spiritual journey on the on the journey of the soul and very shortly after that i i met my teacher and i knew immediately upon seeing him that i had found my teacher i'd found that my prayer had been heard you describe in the book he sort of the, like the first thing he said to you was quite mystical and specific wasn't it Yes. <laughs> um, well, when I was younger, uh, well, as a child, I, I, I lost my mother at the age of four. And I never speak about it. Actually, the first time I've ever mentioned it was is in this in this book. Normally, I um, even met quite a few friends of, of mine didn't really know this. Um, and so uh, there are various challenges that we experience in life that that are quite formative and that make us who we are and and play an important role or um, 
part or an influence in the directions that we take. So, you know, maybe the my my um I would say that part of my search in life uh has been because of these various challenges that happened when I was young. And when I met my teacher uh, for the first time, we exchanged a few words. And one of the first things he said to me is, you know, he looked at me very deeply. And it felt very much like he was scanning lifetimes, um, many births. (laughs) And he said to me, remember always, I am your mother. Wow, that's so beautiful. That's so beautiful to to have someone connect in with with your almost like your inmost desire and your inmost pain. And you know, you you were saying tatva tatva darshini, like tatva, to see yeah. to see to know the truth of your heart and to be able to communicate and connect with that. Um, that's extremely profound, and and especially after doing this sacrifice. And as you were telling that story, it gave me this, this understanding of let each step be its reward. It feels like you're really forced to, to realize that truth of like each step is the reward on the path because you're not really getting anywhere very quickly and you have to be okay for the next, however many hours kind of not making a lot of progress in the external world, potentially. That's right. That's right. So one of the one of the things that I've I've gotten from the book is this idea of accepting the pain and suffering and hard times. And we are so averse to it and we do everything we can in the modern world to have the right AC unit and have the comfortable bed and have the anti-aging supplements and do all the things to extend life and there's nothing wrong with any of that. I'm not saying that's wrong or anything, but we we really are struggling against this inevitable end and 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 one of the things you're really bringing out and that the Gita is really sharing with us is to surrender to the way that God wants it to the way that our our souls unfolding will happen and you know there's a this the fourth teaching of the book maybe maybe this will lead into that right um what is the 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 point of accepting suffering and and what the Gita talks about is love, but more more specifically sacred love. So maybe you could share about that. So yeah, um, in the contemporary Western world, we tried we very much try to um, avoid suffering at all costs, and in particular crisis. So there's a stigma attached to crisis. And each one of us at some point in our life will go through a period of intense difficulty, uh, a dark night of the soul. So in Sanskrit, that's referred to as vishad. Vishad literally means despair, or you can say crisis. And a dark night of the soul is not like, you know, a bad day at work. <laughs> dark night of the soul is really uh, the collapse of meaning in our life. It's it's a very difficult experience. Now, one thing I, I, I don't want to romanticize difficulty and pain and suffering. That's um, the texts of India don't do that. Uh, you know, this slogan uh, that bodybuilders have, 
no pain, no gain. Yeah. <laughs> That's not a yoga teaching. <laughs> In fact, one of the definitions that Krishna gives of yoga is uh, uh, dukkha sam yoga vi yoga. Yoga is breaking our connection to suffering. So, but in, inevitably, um, pain and difficulty will come our way. And, and how do we navigate that? There's not so much in our, certainly in my up, upbringing and education, there was not so much to help me with that. Uh, generally, if someone goes through a very difficult episode, uh, they are medicated. And sometimes for clin clinical depression, for example, that's necessary and that's mm -hmm. you know, helpful. But a lot of the uh, often the well, a dark night of the soul need not be depressive, mm -hmm. and yet it's it's a very difficult and a challenging period. Um, and we will often, as a when we experience that, we'll think something's wrong with me, and we'll try and hide it, we'll try and resist it, avoid it. We may try to do that through uh, alcohol and drugs, or you know, many different ways to try and just avoid that. But in ancient India and in other cultures, the dark night of the soul is look, looked upon very differently. It's uh, regarded as a sacred rite of passage. And um, so much so that in the Gita, it's accorded the title of a yoga system, Vishad Yoga, Vishad. The, the yoga of crisis. Uh, and that can be... Um, it can be, it can be really quite transformative. We see that many of the the the, the most in, you know the most incredible uh, artists, musicians, authors, they composed their most magnificent work after a dark night of the soul. Because what a dark night of the soul will sometimes do, or often do, is it it we will we will emerge from that and relinquish the kind of facile masks, uh, mask or identity that we present to the world. We, we may uh, well just, you know, give that up. And it can really, uh, really deepen the soul. You know, the whole world feels like it went through a dark night of the soul uh, in 2020. And maybe there was the Dhritarashtra style avidya dark night happening anyway but it became way more apparent it was an eruption for the whole planet you know and we have environmental collapse we have the collapse of all these ecosystems we have um so social justice and equality issues being brought up that needs to be brought up in every almost every part of the world we have the massive health crisis so there's there's all these things the meaning the fabric of of what we thought you know, the status quo was or how, how tomorrow would be is, is really becoming clear that we actually have no control over that. And we, we, we are all on this uh, amazing spherical, maybe uh, <laughs> this amazing globe rolling through the, the galaxies, right. At uh, thousands of miles an hour, completely at the mercy of the cosmos. And it, it is a time, I mean, the more people I speak to, the more uh, journeys I'm hearing about of people going through this and it it's we we aren't necessarily given a ton of really effective tools to handle this mainly because we think we need to avoid pain too everything is trying to escape and so you know your book and the gita and the sacred texts and the 
the like you said the training methodologies of the yoga systems are designed to disconnect us or not disconnect us but to help us kind of align with our our true self and that true self isn't a self that experiences temporary suffering could i say a little bit about uh, um krishna's teachings on pain and suffering please yes because that that's that that's an immediate and natural response that or question we may have okay it's all very well having yoga teachings about crisis but in the crisis that i'm experiencing there's just so much suffering what do i do with that how do i navigate that so krishna addresses that very early on he says to arjuna um Matras parshas to konteya shitoshna sukadukada agama pahino nityam tangstitikshasvabharata. And the verse that comes after that as well. Um, Krishna tells Arjuna that there's a difference. He explains that there's a difference between pain and suffering. So pain is inevitable. In our life, there's a certain amount of pain that we will experience. But suffering is optional. So suffering is the story we create around our pain. Um, so Krishna describes in this, in, in, in this verse in the Gita that pain is like heat and cold or uh, shita and ushna. So heat and cold or, or winter and summer. So winter and summer will come. There's not much you can do about it. <laughs> um, Krishna says, don't be, don't be distracted by it. In other words, don't create a story around it. So when I was in India, I, I, I had a, like a, my own experience of this that, that helped me understand what Krishna is trying to say to Arjuna. So in Uttar Pradesh, in the summer, it's incredibly hot, Kaylee. I don't know if you've experienced it. In the I summer. try and avoid it. Uh, I think I left. I left right before for Jagannath Puri. Right before it got really hot. <laughs> Smart decision. <laughs> um, it's like if you have an oven and you put it on three hundred and fifty or four hundred degrees for an hour, and then you open up the door and that hot wind that blows at you. That's what it's like in the afternoon if you step outside. And no one does, you know, it's it's empty. The animals, you won't even see animals out, out at that time. So There's no AC either, basically, right? No, no AC. The electricity is cutting. So the little fan that you have um, is, is <laughs> of not much use. <laughs> Sporadically cuts out. <laughs> and I was, uh, as a monk living in the temple monasteries uh, of, of, in Vrindavan and Mathura, I stayed over the summer and it was incredibly difficult. And I was, the whole time I was thinking, you know, what am I, why did I make this decision? I should have gone home. I should have gone to the Himalayas like that. And then I, I looked around me at one point in that experience, I looked around me and I saw that the locals were just not troubled in the same way that I was. And even the children, you, you see them, uh, playing and laughing and, and, and going about their daily life. And there I was in absolute agony. And I understood in that moment that most of the difficulty was not the heat. 
It was the continuous speaking of the mind, the story I was creating around that. So I was thinking the whole time, you know, I need to get out. When is the rainy season coming? Oh, no, the fan has stopped again. You've made the <laughs> wrong decision. This isn't the right the thing. <laughs> so just being aware of that, um, kind of stopped that continuous speaking of the mind. And then the rest of the summer was really not that difficult in comparison to the first half. And that's what uh, Krishna is trying to explain to Arjuna. When we are so uh, intent on escaping, on, on uh, avoidance, avoiding pain, then we actually enhance or um, we strengthen the story that we create around that. And, and that's suffering. You can say there's pain and there's suffering. Suffering is the pain of pain. And it's, it, that's optional. So Krishna teaches Arjuna how uh, there's a certain amount of pain and pleasure in our life. But the, the, the suffering that we experience is, is the story we create around that. And, and so he goes on to say, let love, let sacred love be your goal. And, and that feels to me like the way through this. And so how do we practice practically in this world we find ourselves in with pain, with suffering, with utility bills, with pollution, with all this stuff, how do we cultivate this goal of sacred love? And what is that? Um, that's great. <laughs> As someone who practices yoga, uh, this particular teaching is uh, potentially, in, well, for anyone, um, for that matter, but it's, it's life transforming because we tend to focus a lot on other aspects of our life. So, you know, we may invest um, tens of thousands, perhaps even hundreds of thousands of, of dollars in our education, you know, in, in, in improving our mind and, and our knowledge. But where are the schools that teach us how to um, strengthen our ability to love? How to, um, where are the schools of the heart? <laughs> so all yoga systems and any spiritual journey, if it's softening our heart, it's a very good sign. If our practice is hardening our heart, then something is wrong in, in our practice. So this is uh, maybe a first step in, in, in this culture of, of, of culture of the heart, culture of, of love and affection, to become more aware well, first of all, to make uh, sacred love the goal of our life, the goal of our practice, and to be more aware of um, the condition of our own heart in whatever it is that we're doing. So, you know, even in um, any, you know, day-to-day -day projects or uh, if we are at work, how are we thinking, speaking, and acting? Is it a, is it a way... Is it part of our yoga practice, our, our culture of love and affection, or is it opposed to that? If it's opposed, it's not yoga, but it's known as V-yoga, or that which takes us in the opposite direction to, to our spiritual yoga practice. Now, there are two, broadly speaking, there are two types of love. And the, the sacred texts of India speak about this. You could call them small love and sacred love. 
and they're quite different to each other. So small love is love that's very much tied to the small human story that we have. Um, it's it's conditional, and uh, you know we love someone for when they love us. <laughs> it's um it's temporary, which leads to the astonishing. Uh, I've always found this astonishing how two people can declare their undying love for each other. And a year later, they could be declaring their undying hatred for each other in the divorce courts. So that's because of the conditional and and temporary nature of small love. Uh, Another characteristic of small love is that it's very limited. So it's limited to our immediate family and friends. And it's not a love that extends to all people. Um, Sacred love is the opposite. (laughs) So instead of uh, conditional, it's unconditional. And instead of being um, uh, temporary, it's it isn't temporary. And so it's not, not a love that is broken. And it extends to all people, to all beings, not just to a few who um, serve, you know, who may serve our imagined interests in the small story of our life. So small love is represented by the opening verse of the Gita, where Dhritarashtra is, is expressing his fear and his love for his sons, Duryodhana. He's, he's expressing small love there. His conditional, temporary small love based on his, his, his story, which sees the world in terms of friend and enemy. Um, now, the culture of sacred love is a topic of many sacred texts, especially in our bhakti tradition. And the way that uh, sacred love is cultured in, in our tradition is by focusing it on the soul of the universe. The soul of the universe, according to the teachings of ancient India, is present in the heart of each one of us. And by directing our love there, we automatically direct our love, our love and affection to all beings, necessarily. So uh, an, ex- uh, uh, an, an analogy that's often used to explain this is watering the root of a tree. If you water the root of the tree, automatically the leaves and flowers, um, that, that, that love extends to the leaves and flowers in all parts of the tree. So if you have, imagine you have a, a beautiful tree full of flowers, you can look after the individual leaves and flowers. And that's one approach. And it's a well-meaning approach, but it's, it's limited. You'll only be able to do that for the leaves and flowers you can reach. Um, but if we focus our uh, dedication and, and, and love to the root of that tree, it nourishes all parts of the tree. So in the same way, someone who, uh, a yoga practitioner, who makes that connection with divinity within them, with the, the, uh, the, the soul of the soul, or the soul of the universe, that making that connection is known as, as yoga. And the result of that is you've experienced um, everyone is your family. No one is a stranger. 
and you have respect and deep love and affection for all beings. Actually, respect, the word respect comes from the Latin respicere, which means to see or to behold. Hmm. So true respect for others is being able to see them beyond our own and their, their own stories, hmm. to be able to see someone else on the level of the sacred self, beyond the stories that we're living out in this temporary world. That's so beautiful. That encapsulates uh, some of the teachings on on bhakti or sacred love. And I mean, there's some there's so much that we could go into for literally eons on each of these points and each of these subjects. But that was so beautifully shared. And in your book, you go through each of these four things that we've outlined in much more detail and more. Uh, and then you have the book of Dharma. I'm I'm curious, as a result of writing this and and sharing it with your community in the world and traveling around, what what is what's something beautiful or inspiring that's come about uh, after having published this book? Um, with the book of Dharma and and yoga and the dark night of the soul, it has been it's been an opportunity to connect with so many people in a way that. I would have never had the chance to do so. So because in this book, I in, in both books, I share quite a few uh, personal and really quite, I don't know, I would say private details about, uh, about my life and my own journey. So I make myself quite vulnerable in, in doing that, which was not so easy to do, actually, uh, for me. I'm, I'm, I tend to be quite a private person, <laughs> quite a shy person. So the, the result of that, though, is that so many have written and shared and expressed challenges that they are facing or have faced and, and aspects of their life that they're looking to, um, to, 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 to improve and or that have been um, that have changed dramatically as a result of applying some of these these teachings and. That's been such a really such a joy. One thing that I've I've tried to do with this these books is that, um, well, should I share this? Okay, I will. <laughs> I try to make them part of my practice of devotion, my practice of bhakti. So um, any funds that come from a book sales, for example, all of that goes towards really special causes. So there is um, Sandipani Muni School in, in India, which uh, is a school for young, young girls from, from very difficult backgrounds. Uh, there's a lot of poverty in India. And often young uh, girls are married at a very young age. Mm-hmm. And to avoid that uh, and, and, and help um, young girls get the education that's the same education, uh, opportunities of, of education as, as, as others, right up the way to, to university, they have these, uh, uh, these schools, Sandipani Muni School. And so I, I've been supporting that and, and also the um, giving out of medical supplies and, and food to thousands of people in the area of Brindavan, right where I lived uh, as a monk for so many years. And just the joy of, of these kinds of projects um, 
has it's it's been such a joy and the credit goes to the readers because this is uh um these are i see this as contributions from the readers Mm. to these incredible projects and and so that's been another like silver lining or or something very special or dear to my heart that's come out of this project what a beautiful gem to to be able to accomplish so many things with one activity like expressing yourself sharing your journey um, sharing medicine and tools that will help people through suffering and at the same time honoring your lineage and your teachers and at the same time creating impact and i love that i mean that's that's why i love podcasting why i love writing i i believe that the platform itself has such a tremendous power to connect us all and to channel funds where they need to go and that's that's so inspiring and thank you for sharing that with us and you know everyone you can go to simonhas.com that's s i m o n h a a s.com you can also obviously find um his books on amazon what is the best way for people if they wanted to uh connect with you or just see what you're up to is it your website do you have a social platform that you're more active on what's the best way uh probably my probably my website uh simonhas.com Although I, I, I'm also on Facebook and you'll, you'll be able to find me there as well. Amazing. And I mean, this has been such a deep dive and so many topics uh, that I would love to just go on forever. But, you know, we're, we're here at time. It's been so wonderful having you on the show. And I really recommend everyone go check out Yoga and the Dark Night of the Soul and his other book, The Book of Dharma. These are both amazing reads, very engaging. Every page, so easy to read, yet they are um, extraordinarily packed full with meaning and depth. And, you know, I feel like you've done an amazing job taking Sanskrit, which is so condensed and, and deep, and opening it up for, uh, uh, you know, modern readers to consume. So thank you so much for your service and what you're doing out there, Simon. And thank you for coming on the show. Kaylee, thank you so much for inviting me. I have loved this conversation with you. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Beyond Air. I hope you enjoyed it and are now one step closer to turning on your microphone and broadcasting your message to the world. I'd love to hear from you. Let me know how I can help you on your broadcasting journey by getting in touch with me and maybe even apply for a strategy session if you want to discuss your podcast idea. You can reach me at www.podcast.com dashfarm.com. Till next time, my friends, I'm Kaylee Marks, and thanks for tuning in to Be On Air. We have this rare opportunity right now. There has never been a time like this before where we've been able to so easily share our voices with the world. And the planet is going through an enormous struggle and an enormous transformation right now. It's my belief that the best way forward is for each of us to find our purpose, to share our passions, and to communicate with each other so that we can amplify what we love, who we love, and those voices that need to be elevated. We turn up the volume. This isn't just another course. This is a community that will take you to the next level. You'll be guided to launch your own podcast 
and distribute it so that the entire world can hear it. This isn't just launching a podcast, my friends. This is about using the power of your voice to amplify what you love.